first I wanted to just kind of summarize, um, you know, when I started this back, I think, in July, and I thought maybe this would take a couple of, of uh, sessions to go through, but uh, it's actually going to take at least one more after today. Um, and at that time, we talked about the human problem of sin and the traps or temptations that lead us into that problem. Today, we want to transition from why we fail to overcome sin to the foundational concept necessary for Christians to overcome sin. And then, I think in November, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, uh, we will talk about some specific steps to overcome sin. Uh, another thing I wanted to do, which, uh, which uh, comes about as a result of somebody... Uh, graciously giving me some feedback from the last time that I was up here. Um, we were talking about um, some of the traps, and the, my last point was about, frankly, wealth and the love of money. And uh, the, uh, the question or the, uh, the, uh, you know, the query or, or the, the encouragement was, it didn't quite see how it connected in with these traps. And Maybe I just want to clarify that and maybe give you one, one uh, contrast. Um, the, uh, the, the specific passage, we're kind of going back to last time now, is out of 1 Timothy 6, uh, where it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content." But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The point being, if I can try to emphasize this, that... Um, Money, or the love thereof, is a, t is a huge temptation. And we don't realize, I think we talked about this, it's amazing how many things that Bob talked about this morning that we'll touch upon today, just because we planned it all out, right, Bob? <laughs> uh, um, it's amazing how the love of money works in our lives. Uh, just to give you a couple of, you know, of men to contrast... Um, how many of you have heard of Howard Hughes? Okay. Now, be honest. How many of you had heard of him before the movie The Aviator? Okay, good, good. Well, I'll be honest with you. I haven't seen the movie, but uh, he was kind of the name associated with Filthy Rich as I was growing up. And just to give you some background on Mr. Hughes... Uh, Howard Hughes's father uh, uh, invented the oil drilling bit that enabled them to go through rock. Before then, you know, once they hit rock, you know, they couldn't go any further. They had to find another way to the, the pool of oil. And so this was a huge invention, made him very, very rich. Uh, and my guess is, I, I don't have the dates, but my guess is that Howard, as an only child, was born late in his parents' lives. They both died fairly early, and at the age of 18, he took over his father's uh, company after 
not being terribly encouraged or, or enthralled with school, he just told his parents, I don't want to go to school. And they said, okay. And they let him ride horses the rest of his time. So here he was at 18 taking over this tool company, the Hughes Tool Company. Uh, and as you probably have guessed, he got into aircraft. But he, you may not have known, he also got into uh, motion pictures and making them and did fairly well at that. Uh, had a couple of failed marriages, and in, be, in between which uh, he kind of played the Hollywood scene. And uh, eventually, interestingly, and I'm not sure as all the, the ins and outs of this, he got involved politically with the Kennedys and Nixon uh, in some of the scandals uh, therefrom. Uh, but in the latter part of his life, uh, he wasn't making the tabloids because he became a recluse. And he had what I understand was, I'm not sure if this is the correct term, a germophobia, he, a fear of germs. And so he would literally spend his life uh, with, I suppose, an entourage, taking him from one hotel to the next, and he would simply spend his time sitting, disrobed, in front of a TV all day long. When he finally was taken, he died en route to a hospital uh, on an airplane, I believe, and nobody had seen him for so long that they had to take a DNA test to ensure that it was really him because they could not recognize him. He was literally a prisoner as the richest man in the world to his fears. That's what wealth brought to him. And I'm not sure as to all the details of his life, but, but it wasn't a terribly happy one. How many of you have heard of R.G. Letourneau? A few, not too many. Um, and there's a reason for that. Because Mr. Letourneau was a rather quiet man. Again, not terribly enthralled with school. He left at age 14, uh, but studied um, mechanics from correspondence courses. Uh, became employed. This, he, he was born uh, in 1888 uh, and uh, started to work at a garage early on in, in his life. World War II, he was disqualified from service because of a physical problem, but he worked uh, uh, as a maintenance uh, assistant in one of the uh, Navy yards. Um, and uh, when he returned to his garage, uh, he had found that his partner had gone bankrupt, and uh, he had to work to pay off his share of the debts. Um, he uh, eventually started to work on tractors and became in interested in, in uh, those, those sorts of things, and scrapers and that sort of thing. Uh, this doesn't, doesn't sound terribly exciting, but it, uh, it did develop, and he became excited about a better way to build tractors and scrapers and that sort of thing, and he became the inventor of most of the huge machines. You know, you don't think of uh, R.G. Letourneau as being a significant part of D-Day, but all the, all the huge tanks and, and, and other machinery they used to push through the, the fortifications there were developed by his inventions. Um, he eventually established the Laterno Technical Institute uh, to provide technical and mechanical uh, uh, education and Christian testimony. 
for uh, missionaries. Um, that became Laterno University, eventually. Um, he was the leader of the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church, the uh, Christian Businessmen's Association, and president of the Gideon Society at one time or another. Um, and he, it was said of him, there is hardly any phase of the vast industry that has not benefited in advance to the products of Mr. Letourneau's inventive genius. Well, along with all these things that he did came huge, a huge fortune. Uh, he was a multimillionaire. Now, you all know what the word tithe means. It means a tenth. Okay. Well, R.G., Flipped that around. He gave 90% of what he earned away and kept 10% for himself. In fact, he said this, I shovel it out and God shovels it in back through the back door. The problem is God has a bigger shovel. And finally, he said, you will never know what you can accomplish until you say a great big yes to the Lord. You see, two very, very different lives as a result of having a very different approach toward money. Both fabulously wealthy. Both ended very, very differently. And I, I hope that, uh, that helps us understand uh, what... I intended to say by uh, a golden parachute will likely flop. Well, let's move on here. We want to talk today, maybe if, you, if you're paying attention to the piece of paper, which you don't have to, but if, if it helps you, fine. Why do we fail to conquer sinful habits? Um, and I'm going to mention a few here and go into more detail about uh, a couple of them. The main reason that we fail in this area is because um, we fail to understand what it means to be in Christ. And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later. Another reason is that we make provision for sinful pleasures. And we'll talk about that next time. Um, Third reason is we usually try to overcome sin with our own strength or soul. Now, our soul, the Greek name is psuche. Our soul is composed of our mind, will, and emotions. And we fall into Satan's trap when we try to fight those temptations in our own strength. Because we're no match for him. Conquering sin requires the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 says, If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul exhorts us to mortify the deeds of the body. Now, that's an interesting word. Uh, Mortify does not mean to be greatly embarrassed, although that's how we usually use it. If you can say, I'm mortified, then you're not. Okay? Mortify comes from the, uh, the Latin word mors, uh, from which we get our words mortal, mortuary, and interestingly, mortgage. Uh, and it all means death. If I'm mortal, I'm going to die. If I'm immortal, I will never die. Okay? As a sidelight here, 
Uh, I wanted to know, because this is only the third time I've been up here, how many of you use the King James Version with any regularity? Anybody? Not too many. (laughs) Okay. Well, I got started on it, and I'm going to try to use other versions. I don't have any problem with other versions. But one of the reasons I, I appreciate the King James is not only because of its poetic nature, but because it has these words that I've got in my mind through memory that if I have to look up in an accordance, you know, I know which word to look for, of course. That helps with Strong's. Um, but also because it makes you think, you know, what does the word mortify really mean? And it helps you go back to some of the originals. Well, you don't need to hear more about that, I'm sure. But at any rate, if we look at this verse, what it simply says is, if you put to death the sinful deeds of the body, you live. But if instead you live after the flesh, you die. What does that mean? Well, I am generally a literalist. In other words, I believe that God means what he says and he says what he means. However, when we take what would Hank Hanegraaff would, would call a literal wooden approach to some things, we sometimes can lose touch with machine control. Okay? We have to be careful. Uh, If you look at this verse and think about it, I think you'll come to the conclusion that I have that this means neither that a person who is truly saved but who is living after the flesh will drop over dead, although that's always possible. Uh, Nor does it mean that upon his death he will descend to hell. It is certainly possible that a person who claims to be a Christian never really accepted Christ as Savior. But it's also possible that a true Christian can live after the flesh. The backslider, as we would call them, the, the true Christian who's living after the flesh, simply does not enjoy the dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Although he's saved, he will live and feel, feel like a spiritually dead, unsaved person. To this believer, the Holy Spirit brings conviction, guilt, not the joy of the Lord. Now, how can I, I'm, you know, I'm not a, an exegete. I'm not cemeterially, you know, seminarily, whatever they call it. I haven't been to, to, that, to that school. Um, How can I make a statement that the Bible doesn't mean what it says? Well, you know, let's take a look here. First, we look at context, all right? Uh, And I think the context shows that death here is not physical but spiritual. Look at uh, Romans 8.10. It says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Secondly, you know, that interpretation that, that literal interpretation is counterintuitive. In other words, it goes against our experience. Um, if that was the case, if we're living after the flesh, we die, uh, then none of us living persons would have ever lived after the flesh. Now, I don't know about you, I think I do though, but I have lived after the flesh from time to time. Uh, and uh, I'm still alive, I think. And thirdly, I think, therefore I am, I think. All right? So anyway, with that conclusive proof, I can say that this is one of those verses we don't take too literally. Uh, Now, this 
seeming contradiction uh, in this particular verse of the saved living after the flesh, I think is illustrated in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, where he refers to these people as brothers, but also carnal. Uh, and I, brothers, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So that's what I think we're talking about when we talk about um, this whole issue of living after the flesh. Another reason that we fail to conquer sinful habits is because simply we're double-minded. Um, having a desire to conquer sin but at the same time, a conflicting desire to enjoy sin. Such a person cannot have consistent victory over sin. Uh, Double-minded, the Greek, uh, daisukos, that person has yet to learn to hate or to be repulsed by evil. Therefore, he will be unstable in all his ways. Uh, reference back to last time, Gollum or Schmeagel or whatever we call him. Uh, he's, he lives in two different worlds. And unfortunately, we as Christians sometimes at least momentarily find ourselves being double-minded. Finally, another reason that we fail to overcome sin is because we try to hide our secret sins. Uh, Proverbs tell us that stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he who does not know that the dead are there, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. In Numbers 32 it says, When you have sinned against the Lord, be sure your sin will find you out. And in James 4, it tells us, but he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The shame and humbling we experience when we confess rather than hide our sin are actually part of God's provision to receive grace and to conquer sinful habits. Uh, now, it hurts when we confess sin. I mean, everybody knows that, don't you? It's not an easy thing to do. But not nearly as much as when our sin is exposed by others. Uh, quite a few examples, okay? Uh, one of the most notorious is the Catholic priest scandal, okay? Lots of those. And as an aside here... Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with celibacy because Paul thinks it's a pretty good thing if you can devote your, your life to Christ through celibacy. I'm not sure doctrinally whether it's appropriate to tell people you can't be a minister without being a celibate, and I think that's part of the problem. But lest we think this problem is confined to Catholics, we might remember names like Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart, okay, and the Protestant side. And it's not just the Pentecostals and the Charismaniacs. Uh, if you recently, recently you might have become aware that uh, within the last year or two, that the head of the National, Organ- National Association of Evangelicals had problems in this area. And the, 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 the 
crazy thing is that all these men, as far as I know, were married. So they don't have the excuse that the, the priest had. Uh, secret sin always seems to come out one way or another, particularly those who are high in, in public awareness. And, of course, you know, there's the political arena. Some of you may be old enough to remember a good old boy from, I think it's Ottawa, Kansas. And you can tell me if this is true or not. I think he's from Ottawa. Uh, by the name of Gary Hart, who ran for president. And he got involved with some monkey business and fell quickly out of the race. Um, more recently, we know about Mr. President Clinton. We know about a um, representative from Louisiana who had this strange habit of hiding large amounts of cash in his freezer. Uh, and, of course, other Democrats. <laughs> but it's... We've got to remember, though, it's not just the Democrats. You know, if you remember the name Mark Foley, who uh, our friend Jim Ryan, just because he lived near him, got wrapped up in, and, and Mr. Foley is credited with almost single-handedly handing the House of Representatives over to the Democratic Party because of his problems. Uh, more least recently, there's Senator Larry Craig and his indiscretion, and uh, uh, one that happened, I think, uh, a while before, Senator David Vitter, also from Louisiana, uh, who was very big, apparently, among many of the Christian and conservative uh, movement people. In fact, recently, I think within the last couple of months, I heard him on Jay Sekulow's uh, program about some pro-life legislation, talking about what he was working on and that sort of thing. I said, this had to be recorded way back. This had to be a replay of something. Um, Because these men who already are in high office put themselves in a higher position by taking stands on positions important to the, the moral majority or minority or whatever it is out here, and they invite a harsh rebuke when they get into compromising situations. They're viewed as blatant hypocrites. So, uh, hiding sin has never been an easy thing to do, and never will be, uh, according to the the Scriptures. Well, we want to move on to, really, I think, the key ingredient of overcoming sin. And that is to understand what it means to be in Christ. Again, um, next time, I think in November, we'll talk about specific steps, but this is a concept we've got to get down. Uh, Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life in, in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now, to understand what it means to be in Christ you've first got to understand what does it mean to be in Adam. Uh, If we could find some of Adam's remains today, modern science would tell us that, believe it or not, we're all related. We all have the same DNA strand to some extent. Uh, Unfortunately... 
we also share something from Adam called his sin nature. Um, And the consequences of that nature are a part of our present lives. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That's how we're in Adam. Uh, We need to also understand that at salvation, we become part of Christ's spiritual body, his death to sin, and his resurrection. In Romans 6, it says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ? We have been baptized into his death as well. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. This next point, I think, is is vital about being in Christ. Because we, uh, we sometimes struggle. And I think it's, for me, it's because I really don't understand. I haven't understood, and I need to understand better, the great power that's available through Christ. It's a hard concept. You know, we have a concept of power, a physical concept, and it's hard to transfer that over into the spiritual. But that's what we must do. Um, In Ephesians 1, I'm going to read the passage here from verses 15 through 23. It says this, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus... And love unto all the saints. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and all power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now here, Paul prayed that the Ephesians might know God personally. And then he explains why. So that they may know three facts. The first is, This is in verse 18. A believer's present hope has its source in the past when that believer was called to salvation. Now, what is hope in this context? 
Romans 8.28 says, We are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? You mean, literalist, that we're saved if we wish to be? Well, no. Hope here, in the Greek it's elpis, I, I think, is not that wishing, but absolute certainty, trust, and confidence of a believer's victory in God. It is not, to paraphrase that great theologian, the engine that could, I think I'm saved, I think I'm saved, but rather, I know I'm saved. I know that I'm saved. That is what hope means in this context. The second fact that Paul wanted to impart to the Ephesians, also in verse 18, is to the future riches of his glorious inheritance in, not of, the saints. Whose inheritance is this? It's his, not ours. At the resurrection of believers, God inherits those whom he purchased with great price according to the riches of his grace. The third fact, and this is the one that we want to focus on here briefly, in verse 19, pertains to the present. God's incomparably great power for believers. Paul uses, and you have to look at this verse, verse 19, Paul uses a series of significant words to get his point across. Um, the first word power in that verse, and I think I had it printed there at the bottom of the page. The first word is the Greek dynamis. It means miraculous power, a spiritually dynamic and living force. Okay? Next word we look at is working. And this is energeian, meaning an energetic power. The next word is mighty, inherent strength. Then he uses the word power again, except it's a different Greek word. Uh, the word kratos. Help you at all? Maybe not. Uh, but this is a word used only of God, never of believers. And it means the power that overcomes any resistance. For instance, the miracles of Christ. But using all these words together, he's trying to get something across to his dumb sheep. Us, that he's got tremendous power that we need to appropriate. And this power is available to all believing Christians for the taking to use in our personal war against sin. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, we can't be Superman. But we can do the important things. We can resist any temptation. In 2 Timothy 1, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. 
So I want to close here and, and just read uh, a passage out of 2 Corinthians 13. And I would just invite all of us here to, to think about, to contemplate. And when you have time to pray about this important concept of appropriating God's power in our war against sin. Second uh, Corinthians 13, starting at verse 2. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now I'm absent, I say in advance to my coming, to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now, we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you may be made complete. Lord God, We confess to you, Lord, that we fail in many, many ways. And we pray, Lord, that you would walk with us and open our eyes. Lord, take a two-by-four to our foreheads, whatever it takes to help us understand that we do not have to succumb to sin. We do not have to be double-minded. There is no sin that will overtake us, that is not common to all men. But you have given us the power to overcome all temptation. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to understand these simple truths, each and every one of us, because we all struggle. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to enjoy the victory that we have in Christ Jesus by living and being in him. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.